Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Mark Coyne, a former St George Dragon, Queenslander and Australian Rugby League player. He played 222 first grade games for the mighty St George Dragons, 100 as captain, 19 state of origins and 9 tests for Australia. He's also the current CEO of EML, an injury claims management insurance service. Away from all this, he sat on a number of boards including the NRMA and is a huge supporter of the Sporting Chance Children's Foundation, raising money for the prevention of kids' cancer. And Kirk Pengilly, an Australian musician and member of the great rock and roll band In Excess. He's also a member of the Australian ARIA Hall of Fame. Away from music, he's married to seven-time world champion surfer Lane Beachley and is an ambassador for Glycoma Australia and is a passionate foodie. And Colin Keating, CEO of Mind Biotherapeutics, a company pioneering clinical studies into the microdosing of psychedelic medicines in treating depression, anxiety, PTSD, panic and chronic pain. He's also a good mate of mine and a former first grade cricketer and I think he actually scored a good 80 once. Let's get started. Welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host, Shane Lee. Today on the show, Mark Coyne, a former St George Dragon and Australian rugby league player. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Shane. Great to be here. And Kirk Pengilly, an Australian musician and member of the rock and roll band In Excess. Welcome, Kirk. Thanks for having me. And Colin Keating, a CEO of Mind Biotherapeutics, a company pioneering clinical studies into the microdosing of psychedelic medicines and is a former first grade cricketer and he tells me he scored a brilliant 80 once. <laughs> Welcome, Colin. Thanks, Shane. That's great. <laughs> Now, I want to start off with, um, with you, Corny, because I'm a, a huge Dragons man. Um, yep. And I did a little bit of research, uh, as I do to all my guests, and I called upon one of our good mates, Corey Pearson, and to get a little bit of background on you, Corny, and he said... There's been no research done there. <laughs> counting on him, mate. He said Corny was the best captain um, that he ever played under. He said you ruled with an iron <laughs> fist. He said you were a leader of men. And he also said, you're lucky you got Kirk on the show because you've got some personality. <laughs> <laughs> but, mate, um, just reading those stats, 100 games as captain, you must be really proud of being a, a one-club player. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's a bit different nowadays. Uh, you know, the players seem to jump around a little, a fair bit uh, just because I think the way the, the contracts work. But, um, no, I was really proud. And funnily enough, I was a St. George supporter as a young kid. So as a seven-year-old, I had Steve Morris's poster up on my wall and uh, to come through and... Yeah, you know, play for the club, let alone captain them, was a really, you know, really, really big honour for me. And uh, yeah, I loved every minute of, of, of playing at the Dragons. And as you know, in terms of captaincy, I think most of us know that you just can't captain on your own. I had a really good bunch of guys around me that were great leaders as well. So it makes it a lot easier when you got good people around you. Kirk, do you, you follow your footy? Absolutely. And are you a, a seagull? Uh, yeah, mainly. You know, I've got a bunch of teams. See, the thing is, I've been doing a tipping comp for the last, uh, or not. I've been in a tipping comp for the last probably 10 years. So every game matters to me and I have to watch every game. <laughs> well, now talk about one-eyed supporters being manly. Colin's from Melbourne. Colin, you're, you're a Collingwood supporter, mate. I am a prize man. You don't get more one-eyed than that, do you? No, and I think we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll live off these first two rounds uh, for the rest of the season. It's been a good start. Can I, can I tell you a funny manly story, Shano? Yes, please you know, do. Kurt will love this. But um, we played at Manly one year in uh, 1994, it was. And it was my first year as captain. And... Um, playing at Brookie and, and uh, Brian Smith was our coach and he brought in a motivational speaker because we lost our first few games of the year 
he brought in a motivational speaker and uh, he came in and he reveled all the boys up and it was the first time we ever ever had music in the dressing room he ran out at Brookvale Oval and he had Bon Jovi living on a prayer <laughs> so we were all pumped up and all that running out running out bad taste <laughs> 25-0 at half-time to the Eagles. 61-0 by full-time. Oh, Never saw that bloke again. Yeah. See, <laughs> it if, was a horrible day. If they had in excess playing in yeah. the well, change exactly, room, mate. Exactly. it might have been a different story. Yeah, tear us apart, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things on, on Lunch with Lee, whilst I try and have guests from business and sport and and, um, and the entertainment industry and music, and I've got all three today, so I'm very, very proud of that. The underlying thing I like to talk about is, is men's health stuff, and um, some really interesting stuff, and we'll get to Cole with the stuff that you're doing with mine, biotherapeutics, and the, the great stuff you're doing for treating depression, PSD, as, as I said before, um, for example. Kirk, um, what's really resonated just recently is that, you know, what unfortunately, that was Shane Warne p- passing away, and I don't think this country has really grieved um, like that since since Michael's passing. Why do you think that's resonated so much with Warney and has it been for that long? Do you think? Yeah, well, def- I mean, you know, with with Warney, I think, um, I, you know, everyone loves Warney. He's 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 a lovable rogue. I think I think everyone likes a bit of rogue in, in someone. You know, a uh, bit of a naughty boy, and uh, but he's but he's lovable and and uh, huge heart and. You know, look, absolutely, I think probably my favourite cricket commentator of all time. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah, I was devastated. I just couldn't believe it when I heard it. But, but I, think, I think it's that, you know, his success, his down-to-earthness and, and his, his kind of roguish kind of cheeky behaviour and, you know, he wasn't afraid to be himself at all times, you know, on and off camera. Um, you know, we, we all know his history and, and, and all the stuff with tweet, tweeting, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But that's what we loved about him. And I think, um, you know, he truly is a national hero. Yeah, and, and Corny, you were saying, talking about the sort of the whole, um, I suppose, depression that comes with, we've seen that in a lot, a lot in young kids these days in sport, particularly with the, the, the head knocks and concussion. Um, and you being in, a, I suppose, injury claim space, um, are we seeing more and more of those sort of claims happening in everyday business? Yeah, so the business I look after, Shane, sort of uh, looks after people who hurt themselves at work. And obviously that's both physical and mental health injuries happen in, in the workplace. So, yeah, we're definitely seeing an increase in mental health claims. And uh, I was just, just saying before how, how there seems to be more mental health programs than ever that are going around, around uh, different people doing them. But we're still getting people seem to be getting sicker and sicker. So there's obviously still, I think, a lot of work to be done in that space. And and uh, I think we're only on the tip of the iceberg in terms of how we how we help people become more resilient, you know, in dealing with that stuff. And, and Cole, what, what's Mind Biotherapeutics in, in a, a short version? Yeah, so we... Um our, our vision is to, to find better outcomes from a mental health perspective. So uh, there's recognition that we're just not doing enough in the space currently. Uh, we're focused on funding research into the use of psychedelics, as you said, um, in terms of achieving those, those better outcomes. Uh, and the research is really compelling at this point. Um, you know, significant advancements in North America and Europe. Uh, we have uh, three clinical trials under our belt from a psychedelics point of view at the moment. We also are investing in digital platforms from a digital mental therapy okay. perspective. All right. Um, and we see that as a critical intervention as well. But uh, you know, to Mark's point, there's you know, there's a plethora of, of wellness applications and and then the like in the uh, in the space at the moment. But there's no real governance or compliance around um, the development of those those applications. So. <clears throat> 
putting some rigor to those to those uh, those um, tools is a really critical part for us. I'm a big fan of psychedelics. <laughs> 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 I don't. I don't have any samples. I'm sorry, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but I am, I'm fascinated by it. Apart from the fact that you kind of your glasses are awesome, you kind of look 50s, 60s, you know. <laughs> and and it was in the 50s and 60s that they experimented with psychedelics in in mental health, and then then it stopped. Um, so what what's what sort of brought it back in? Well, not in vogue, but in at least you know getting. I think it's just that recognition of of the initial. Um, space was about trying to find better outcomes through the use of psychedelics and uh, you know, they were picked up by the hippie generation and, um, and I think at, at that point in time the conservative nature of the US was this is not the right path to head down and, and um, you know, it, it came to a, a sudden halt. But um, educational institutions in, in uh, sort of over the last five, six, seven years have recognised some of the work that was done um, leading up to that um, uh, so those substances have been banned from personal use and have just picked up on the notion of there's, there's more to this. This is not just about treating the symptoms of mental health conditions. It's actually getting to, to in some cases, regeneration from um, a neuron perspective and, and reprogramming pathways. So um, so I think it's, it's no real surprise that it's evolved quite quickly in terms of being picked up again and, and starting to, to progress towards what will be potentially you know, uh, acceptable use of, of the substances for the treatment of the conditions going forward. And again, not just treating the symptoms, actually getting to, to um, so root causes, um, reconditioning you know, physical uh, neurons from a, from a brain perspective. But Mark and I were talking earlier on, there's not enough being done in the space in terms of actually getting to the root cause from a mental health condition perspective in general. So if you think about um, the people who are educating our children are not equipped to identify mental health challenges in, in early stages. And uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a part of our business we'd love to be able to start to promote the, the education of the educators to actually identify those children who are you know, um, being challenged in the early stages and who are starting to, to form some of these challenges from a, from a long-term condition perspective. So, so just on that, Kirk, I'm really interested because the last two years with COVID, um, as a musician, um, I think you're going to see a real creative boom because people will be home and there's chances to create. I think you're going to see a real boom in depression as well because people haven't been able to be out there in front of crowds. It's starting to come back now, but is that the way you see it? It must be tough for, a, for an entertainer not to be able to entertain. Yeah, look, I don't do much of that anymore. I've kind of retired from it. Um, but I, you know, I, I feel for all the musicians because it is all about performing and, 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 you know, performing together like a, like, like a band, like a team. Um, and collaborating and, and then also, uh, you know, performing live to people, to an audience, you know. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's been com- completely horrible for, for the whole entertainment industry, theatre, music, you know, everything. Um, even, obviously, to an extent, um, films, although some films have gone on to be made during the COVID period. But... But I think, um, yeah, I mean, mental health's just out of control. You know, the statistics that Lifeline apparently have, you know, with the call-ins that they're getting is, is, you know, triple what it used to be, yeah, and and all that sort of thing. So um, it's, it's, yeah, it's really difficult and it's been really difficult and it's really changing the landscape for everyone, you know. Nothing will ever be the same again. We might just take a quick break now and we're here at probably my favourite restaurant in Sydney, District Brasserie, and hosted once again by Sam, who does a fantastic job. 
Now on the menu today, boys, we've got a fantastic, uh, some Toshima hanger steak uh, from Andrew's Meats. Uh, it's cooked in a Josper charcoal oven um, over some coals, so that's fantastic. Um, I think we'll start with some oysters. The sashimi is fantastic here too, and I think we'll obviously be washing it down with a nice O'Brien's beer. Oh, and Sam, don't forget the chips, mate. We love the chips here as well. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. Coiny, talk about... um as, as a mate, um, you, you gave me so much pride when you wore the big red V, the, the Dragons jersey. You used to shit me to tears when you played for the Queensland, mate. And uh, the famous try that you're very famous for, I think it went through 11 set of hands, you know, and Ray Warren said, that's not a try, that's a miracle. Do people still walk up to you in the street and mention that to you every day? Once a week. Uh, that'll, happen, that'll, that'll happen to me, yep, yep. Still, still get it, but... It, you know, I, I didn't do that much, really. I just fell over the line at the end. <laughs> I played the ball at the start, by the way, but I and I fell over at the end. But um, it's obviously a really great, you know, proud moment. You know, I had a lot of good things happen to me in my 11 years of playing at the Dragons, and uh, that's certainly a, a massive highlight, you know, putting the jersey on for Queensland and, and then winning that game. But, uh, yeah, no, it was a team effort, and uh, I'm really proud of that I got to finish that team effort. And, yeah, it's probably the one thing that I'm generally known for nowadays and get talked about a lot. <laughs> Did- it must have hurt three grand finals and not to get there. I think we were robbed against Manly that time. Well, I'm not going to lie. It's, that's, in the, that's in the past now, Shane O, but uh, there, was, there was something a bit dubious about that kickoff, the short kickoff, but um, I won't go in there with uh, Matt Ridge. But, um, oh, yeah, look, it, it's, it is one of the things that, that you know, when I, when I sort of was playing, it really hurt me that I didn't win a grand final. But I suppose as you get older, you just sort of recognise, and I've moved into a different career, you sort of recognise that was just sort of a a moment in time and I would have loved to have done that but it just didn't work out my way so I'd, I'd just get on with it and move on and you know I'd sort of made sure that I always had the view that rugby league is just what I did not who I was um, so when I transitioned out of my sporting career it was it was pretty easy for me to do that because um, I just recognised that footy was there for a bit of time and I absolutely loved it and I was passionate about it and, and I wanted to you know play professionally ever since I was a kid but once it was over I was ready to move on to the next stage of my life. See, I'm going to pick you up on that point because you're, you're one of very few sportsmen that have made the, um, the, the, the jump into the business world and a very successful business career. And I'll ask you too, Kirk, um, where it's at. Like, because obviously your career with the band stopped suddenly with what, what happened to Michael. At the time when you finished football and you finished at that point in music, how, how did you both feel and how did you deal with coming to terms with that was one part of your life that was ending and potentially you had to move on to something else? Oh, uh, I'll go, I'll go first just because I was talking. Um, but I, I think, as I said, I was quite, I was quite well prepared for it because I'd worked a lot of years while I was playing footy anyway. And my dad was a school principal, so all, all of my myself and my three siblings all had to go to, at uni. So I had a business degree. Um, so it was still hard, but mind you, because as I said, you, you know, you, you've done that your whole life and you sort of get recognised for being a football player and all of a sudden that sort of ends. 
Um, but I was probably more prepared than a lot of players are nowadays because they get thrown into the into the into the game now and they don't get the chance to go and work anywhere else. So I, I had a bit of experience at least for that. So my my transition was was pretty seamless. Uh, so I was lucky in that regard. And I always had sort of you know I always needed to have a plan B because I think the average career is about two years in professional sport, particularly with league and union and other codes and um, so you got to recognise that you could be out in two years so what do you do then so I've always had a big strong view about having a plan B and when I talk to young kids I talk about plan B so I did that and uh, and I was able to you know transition pretty pretty seamlessly which has been good and Kirk how did you find that, 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 point, that point in your life yeah complete opposite because um, you know uh, we didn't plan for it <laughs> for Michael's death so um, it was a massive you know massive shock um, so apart from dealing with you know the death of your your you know one of your closest friends um, we, we always felt we were a band of brothers you know there's three brothers in the band but it was six brothers um, so you know had to get through all of that first the grieving the anger the, the all the emotions you go through with the passing of someone close um, and then from there, I, look, it was actually, I guess, in a way, Barnsley got the ball rolling. He called up and said, hey, guys, you know, as he yells, I, I won't try and do his Scottish accent, but, but he, you know, he yelled down the phone at us that he was doing uh, uh, Mushroom Records, which was a, you know, a big Australian record company started by Michael Gadinsky, who passed away not so long ago. Um, they were doing a 25-year anniversary of Mushroom Records, and we'd done a, we'd recorded a song with uh, Jimmy, and he wanted us to come to Melbourne for the big concert, for the big celebration, and perform it with him, and maybe do a couple other songs. So we hadn't <clears throat> we hadn't performed in at least a year uh, after Michael passed away, and and I think you know there was a while there where we were sort of going like. Oh, you know, do, it's all over. Or you know, how, how can we continue? What do we do? You know, like how can we? We can't replace Michael with you know, like uh, no one will ever be the same. There won't be, ever be that. Shame, shame, shame going to say him. You could have replaced him. <laughs> had, had to replace one of the greatest frontmen of all time. It did cross our minds. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was it was a tough choice, Jimmy Shane, you know. Um. <laughs> but anyway, you know, so we went and did that show with Jimmy in Melbourne, um, and it was the first the first time we'd performed live, and we, you know we were really nervous, and we'd done some rehearsals, obviously, and all that, and we got up, and the the crowd response was just incredible, and so we went, ah, oh, okay, so I know Barnsley's pretty famous in Australia and all that sort of thing, and but. We, don't, we won't use him, let's try something else. And so we went, you know, we, we did a couple of things. We, we did, uh, we did a, open the stadium, the, um, the, the Olympic Stadium in 2000 with Terence Trent Darby, who's an American singer. Um, and that would, would have been something we would like to have explored further because we really got on well with him. But he was in his solo space doing a solo record and blah, blah, blah. And then we found John Stevens and worked with him for three or four years. And then we went and did a, a we insta yeah, came up with a concept for a, a kind of a real rock style um, search for a singer around the world. And, and that that went really, really well. And, and the album that we did with the singer that won that show, um, yeah, um, he, was a, he was a character. He was a, he was a nightmare, but a lot of fun. 
um, and a great, you know, a, a great, a great singer and a, and a good fit. Um, so we toured with him for a bunch of years until we more or less finished in 2012. Um, so you know, it was just, it was a real. There was no plan. It was just like, and and to some extent, I don't think we ever had a plan other than we believed we were going to make it and we were going to try and be the, you know, the biggest band in the world. And I think I think for a minute we were. Um, and and you know it, it was fantastic, but that was the period with Michael. It was never uh, obviously as big after that, but you know we we still managed to sell out arenas around the world with JD, and um, and it was great fun. And we, we felt you know we felt like we kept the legacy alive and uh, without without doing any damage to it. And yeah. if you're enjoying this episode, why don't you check out a previous one where I interviewed another St George supporter, Stephen Ferris and Andrew Gordon, where we talked about all things music, business, and sport. I think I think you're really lucky um, if you have a chance to do something you're, you're, you're totally in love with, and whether it be music or for me it was cricket and coining you with football. And Cole, you were saying just off air before this job you're doing now, running Mind Biotherapeutics as CEO, and I know you, you have a personal attachment to depression and you know, stuff that goes. Maybe just explain why you, you, this is a the ultimate role for you. Yeah, it's. Um it's really interesting. Getting up every morning is, is nothing like going to work. Um, I've lost a number of mates over the last 10 to 12 years to suicide and um, a brother who's, who's suffered terribly from PTSD. And uh, so, yeah, it was a, a natural fit. And I was saying to Mark earlier on that um, my wife said, you know, things happen for a reason. And this job has kind of just evolved over the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting to be able to be in a position where we might be able to influence uh, you know, a better outcome for, for people who are suffering from those conditions and those support networks as well. So, Corny, who were that, that Queensland team that was so dominant through that period that gave me so much anxiety myself personally? Um, who, were the, who were the real big leaders and sort of guys that you looked up to when you first came into that sort of group? When I first started playing? Yeah. Yeah, probably, you know, the, the people that you'd expect, Wally Lewis and Mal Meninga, uh, Bobby Lindner. Uh, probably Mal was the guy that, that I've got the most out of he was he was a really great leader and I was really fortunate to be part of his coaching staff when uh, he won you know the nine out of ten series uh, with Queensland when he when he came back uh, but yeah Mal, 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 Mal was really good and uh, you just learn a lot and you know I, I remember going into camp and you know when I was only about 21 in my first camp and I didn't know what was going on what am I doing here like you just feel like you're completely out of your out of your depth and all of a sudden you know you're with Paul Vaughton and you know Wally Lewis and all those sort of guys and uh you slowly sort of start to fit in. It takes a bit of time, but you slowly start to fit in. And I just watched and learned. And one of the really interesting things to me, Shane, I learned when I went into my first Origin camp is how much work they did on just the basic ball handling skills. And at St. George, we didn't really any to do that. And I think that's probably didn't probably go very well when I first started at the Dragons. But just all the work that Queensland did, just on the basic skills. And I learned a lot. Thought you actually, and they said you actually got to keep practicing those things. So if you don't practice them, be a bit like playing a guitar, I suppose, or whatever. You just got to keep practicing those things. And uh, and then as as I suppose we got Brian Smith come to St. George, he was very big on that stuff as well. So I learned a lot from from those guys just around the basics of football. And you shouldn't overcomplicate the game of rugby league. It is around is around the basic handling, but it's also about just run hard and tackle hard. If you run harder than the other team and tackle harder, you'll win the game. 
100%. If you look at uh, Steve Smith, currently is the number one batsman in the world. He hits more balls than anyone else. It's as simple as that. He just, just does the basics right. <clears throat> does it in the nets every day, right? In the nets every day. Yeah. Quick question on Mal Meninga. I'm interested in this. He, he seemed to have a broken arm for about 12 years. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he, he wore that well, didn't he? Oh, hey, don't worry, I copped, it. I copped it off him a couple of times. <laughs> I want to ask you, um, I always say for my kids, I've got three, three lovely kids and um, uh, I'm making three rules for them. One, education is a non-negotiable. I want them to play a team sport at some stage and I want them to do an art. So I want them to understand the breadth of different people. Um, we'll talk about opposites. Now, you're a musician and as a musician, you've got to be totally emotional. And that's why, but as a sportsman, your wife Lane, to be really successful I think, as a sportsman, you've got to be somewhat unemotional. Is that why you think you and Lane the opposite the track there? Is that, is that how it works? Oh, wow. Well, you know, when we first met, um, it, it didn't go well. Um, the, the, the first date, we were both trying to, you know, run away and escape. And uh, at dinner, you know, and Lane had gone to the bathroom and was looking for a window in the bathroom. And I was sitting at the table thinking, well, I'll just leave the money and do a runner. But I remembered my car was at her house, so that wasn't going to work. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think opposites, you know, attract and all that. But, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's, you know, relationships are, are a work in progress and always. Um, but we now, after nearly 20 years, have it down pat. Um, and we just adore each other, and um, it you know it just it just really works that we c- we come from two different sort of worlds, as you say, um, but both have been you know high achievers, uh, and we have immense respect for each other. And I think that was the common ground that initially kind of opened uh, everything else in our relationship. No. I can, but it's too hard. I'm not interested. And, and she can't play an instrument. I did buy her uh, six singing lessons for a, 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 for a Christmas present one year, which she did, and she said it was the most uncomfortable outside-of-the-box thing, you know, almost she'd ever done. Yeah. But she, but she, she had to record a song, and, and it's really good. Um, it's a cover, you know, but, but her singing voice just it doesn't sound like her. It was really weird. Yeah, but... Um, but, yeah, I was, I was going to say before, too, you know, I, I, uh, growing up, I, didn't, I was from Melbourne, so I didn't, I didn't follow. Uh, it, we moved to Sydney when I was eight. So I kind of missed the boat on all football. I wasn't interested in it really actually any sport. <laughs> um, and I didn't really play a sport in school. You know, I was the one who went and did ice skating or um, ten-pin bowling or uh, all that. I just wanted to be a muso, you know. Um, so... So for me, um, when I met Lane, she was the first person really that I'd ever come in contact with that was completely sport orientated and athletic and, and you know competitive and in that sort of sense. And we started, you know, she would watch all the Manly games and take me to Brookvale, and um, and so I started watching you know rugby league, and she started teaching me the rules, and I started going, oh, okay, ah. Oh. You know, and yeah, and I and now I'm just like more of a you know a fanboy than she is. You know, I was wondering why you walked in with football boots on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Catch this. <laughs> but but I I remember like you know probably three or four years into our relationship, around around 2005, 2004, when I was really getting into rugby league, I, I kept thinking, you know, what what do these guys do after? Because they they're so you know like I was and like Lamb 
was so focused, you know, nothing else existed outside our worlds, like for me, you know, in the band and for Lane uh, as a surfer and, and for the football players as well. Um, what, what are they, is any, does anyone teach, like, does anyone educate them to do anything? Because it's going to end and it's finite, you know, and, and you can't play football for the rest of your lives. Music maybe, but, um, at, you know, football you can't, you can't play physically for the rest of your lives. And, and it was something that we really talked about a lot. Um, uh, you know, uh, and then met people that were starting to do things and, and starting to teach players that you know they need to start thinking about life after. And because depression, Lane went through massive depression when she when she quit competitive surfing, um, and she didn't know what to do with her life. She had no idea, and there was no plan B. So it's definitely something that needs to be taught to all walks of life. Just, just any, everyone in general need to have a plan B. I didn't. I didn't have one. Well, see, it's an interesting conversation, and I, I had this one with my brother Brett, who you know, I was a bit like you, Corny. I went to university, and, and I had a definite plan B. And I often think, is that good or bad? Brett, Brett didn't do great at school, um, and he was just a fast bowler, and he did. He broke his back when he was 18. He's in a, in a back brace for two years. But Brett said, if he didn't make it in cricket, he didn't have a plan B, so he had to. And so, which which side does it sit? What's what's the motivator? Um, I, th- I think with I think with a plan B, my thought always with with having a plan B was that you're doing a plan B because you don't believe in your plan A. You know, so I never I never had a plan B because I thought no, I'm I'm blinkers, you know, horse with blinkers. I'm doing plan A, and that's it. And if it doesn't work, well, pff, I'll face it when it happens. But. I don't know. Maybe these days you do need a plan B, but it, or is that again? As I just said, is that is that kind of not believing in your plan A? Or is that that, that guidance that can be provided by you know, whether it's the sporting clubs or whoever, whatever the profession is, to actually you know, I think steer elite athletes into thinking about it. You know, their, their focus may be on the plan A, but just you've got to sow the seeds of, of hey, it is going to come to an end at some stage. Well, I remember watching you bat in the Nets, Cole. I'm glad you picked it. <laughs> I was going to ask, you know, are we going to talk about my transition out of first grade a little bit later on? Or And actually, that just coming back just while we're on that, that 80s, Shane, um, you were actually at the other end for, I think, probably only about four balls, but it was against the test attack. I think there was the sort of names of McGrath and Clark in there as well, but you gave us nothing that day. So I can't let that go. I like to ask Kirk a question. That's all right, Shane. About the same things. Is so, Kirk. So, just so what drove you? Like in terms, of obviously, as a as a sportsman, what drove me was around the physical contest and obviously walking off the field that you won a game. So, what what was it? The, did you have a competitive spirit when you were out there playing or working towards playing? Absolutely. And there was a you know massive competitive spirit within the band as well. Um, you know, in on many levels, uh, because there's three brothers to start with. Brothers are always competitive, you know, and it spilled over when the band formed and started. And and I think there was definitely a competitive spirit in in lots of aspects, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, um, I've I've dropped the question from my mind. What was it? <laughs> I know, but I suppose I suppose we. Where was that spirit? All that. Oh yeah, yeah. How did you become to get better and better? How, how did you drive absolutely. yourself? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that was a passion. You know, a passion for music. A passion to, uh, you know, uh, as a team to make it. You know, we we just believed we were going to make it, and we'd do anything to to make that happen. So, um, yeah, we we just 
it, it's taking opportunities um, that come in, you know come before you, making sure you you just just go for every opportunity that that that, that comes at you and. Um, and total passion and belief in what we were doing. Um, it's amazing that um, siblings have a, such a big effect. I know you, your brother Peter also played first grade, and, and it was your brother, yeah. older brother Mark, I think, gave you your first yeah, he was a, guitar, to, and you were self-taught. Yeah, and, and so was he. Um, he, he was a huge... So am I. <laughs> Funnily enough. <laughs> oh, well, you've got your own university, have you? <laughs> But yeah, we uh, yeah, Mark was a massive influence, and and I don't know if I actually told him it's his birthday tomorrow. I might tell him tomorrow how much how much of an influence he was. But but um, yeah, he, he he got me started and self taught and, and all that. But yeah, it's just it's you know it's it's like with you as well. It's just having an absolute passion and and just you love love it. Like and like you said, you know, every morning you wake up and you love going to work, and so did I. You know. Um, what was, what was the back, backyard life for you, Coiny? Pretty good, because I had uh, two older brothers and an older sister, but the, yeah, we played backyard footy all the time in our, at our place at Sunnybank in Brisbane, and I uh, had lo- loved it. It was great, great and, fun. And who, who, who did you pretend to be when you were playing in the backyard? Molly Lewis. So yeah. I thought I was going to be a 5'8", but I never I was a pretty shit 5'8", <laughs> Shane O. But, um, but no, no, it was a, uh, we had a great upbringing, and we did we played a lot of backyard footy, and we played a lot of backyard cricket. And it got to the point where I had to bowl, uh, I had to bat last because I used to suck all the time. Whenever I batted, batted first, I'd get bowled out first ball and I'd, have to, I'd walk off and suck off. So I said, no, you can't bat first anymore, you've got to bat last. So I, I had to run and bowl and field for the whole, for the two brothers got out and then eventually I'd go in and be out first ball still. But that, that paid off, you know, because you, you, you got to do all of it. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I don't know about that. But. Now, it's quite, quite ironic how um, things can just fall in your lap and um, prior to this interview, I was watching the Oscars and we all saw Will Smith go up and, and slap Chris Rock. Now, if you remember a Dragons game, Coiny... Nathan Brown slapped you across the chops once. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. I, I'd left by then, Shano. But uh, I, I slapped some of my mates. Who were one of our, uh, our mates, Corey Pearson, sent me a meme. And I uh, had, had the meme of, um, of the slap with uh, Chris Rock. But then also next to it had the meme of uh, Nathan Brown slapping Trent Barrett. <laughs> so I couldn't stop laughing when I saw it. It's so, it's so, it's so similar. Poor old Brownie. Now, I ask everyone who comes on lunch with Lee um, the same question. I'll start with you, Kirk. Um, if there was a young boy or girl who wants to go into the world of music, what advice would you give them? Um, don't. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, look, look uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a really hard one because it's a different playing field now um, than from when I started. You know, our, our whole sort of... Our whole uh, thing was word of mouth and that was created by playing a gig every night because every pub had had gigs every night back when we started, you know. So it's sort of different, but I think um, I think most of all you've just got to believe in yourself and you've got to be passionate and, and, and love it, otherwise don't bother. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're all unique. All of, Every human on the planet is unique and different. And so work with that work work with the things you love and 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 the you know the, the uniqueness that you are um and then yeah and i think that's that's really important and corny a young boy or girl that wants to go into play professional sport what advice would you give them yeah probably same same as kirk you got you got to enjoy it you got to do something that you enjoy and you got to love it so i think that's really important and once you start not loving it 
it's probably time to look at doing something different. But I think the other one's just really the basic skills. Just keep practicing the basic skills and listen to your coaches. I don't think it's too overcomplicated. And Cole, a young boy or girl wants to go in the world of business because I know that's the most cutthroat <laughs> industry there is. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give them, mate? I think it's just being open to learning the whole way through. So from yeah. your, your entry-level role, whether it's a graduate or just you know stepping into your first job, uh, all the way through to you know, where I am now, I learn every day. There's, uh, I think, recognise that there's always smarter people in the room than you, um, and there's always a lesson to be learned along the way. So, yeah, well said. Well, I want to thank you all for coming on lunch. We're going to have a fantastic buy tweet now at District Brassery. And Kirk, thank you. I've got a, a beautiful bowl of Kirk Pengilly wine in front of me here. It's a rosé, yep. mate. I can't wait to taste this over lunch. We've got the the hanger steak here that's done on the Jasper charcoal grill ah. here, which is outstanding. So this rosé will go fantastically well with that. Uh, Mark, fantastic, mate. You're always been a you're a good mate um you're a dragon i love you mate. i'll take a leave the queensland thing but thanks for thanks for your time mate and, and well done with aml doing a fantastic job and and cole mate the stuff you're doing i think you um and mind biotherapeutics are going to do a huge uh service to this country particularly people suffering depression and mental illness and um keep up the good work mate thanks mate awesome, awesome. thanks Jono. cheers that's it for lunch Willie this week a big thank you goes out to our guests mark Coyne, kirk pengilly and colin keating Thanks to our sponsors, O'Brien Beer, and thanks to the restaurant District Brasserie for once again an awesome lunch. Make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from, and do us a favour, hit five stars, and if you're passionate, leave a review. Come check us out on Instagram at I'm at Lunch with Lee. Our official Lunch with Lee photography was done by Felicity Kelly. You can find her on Instagram at Felicity Kelly Portraits. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh, for another great job. And we'll be back soon with more legends and guests on Lunch with Lee. We'll see you then. Do, do, do.